Hi, my name is Alistair Caithness, CEO of Zion Inc. And this is our new podcast that discusses the energy industry and the blockchain. If you'd like to know more about the company or more about today's show, then visit our website, www.zion.com. Thanks very much. Enjoy the show. So for today's podcast, I'm joined by David Greenberg. David Greenberg is president of Greenberg Capital and a former board member of the New York Mercantile Exchange, otherwise known as NYMEX. He has lectured on the transition to electronic markets at the Museum of American Finance, West Point Military Academy, and Columbia University. So good to speak to you this morning then, David. No, good to speak to you. How's everything going out in San Diego? Yeah, everything's good with us out in San Diego. So um, just to kick things off, if you could give a bit of background about yourself, David, and your time as a crude oil and um, gold pit trader. Sure. Well, I'll give you from the beginning. I started off as a runner in Chicago, uh, making $3.75 an hour when I got out of college. You know, really questioning that one, right? So uh, and then moved up to a phone clerk. And then my father had actually a clearing house in New York on the Comex Exchange. And that was when you had the big um, silver problems in 87. So I flew back home to help clear that up a little bit. Just, you know, I was one of the clerks, uh, just doing a lot of the, the clerk work. Uh, so I ended up uh, clerking for a local trader, which a local trader, what many people don't realize is that most of the traders on the floor traded their own money. Uh, so a local trader was somebody that traded their own money. So I clerked for the local traders for a while, and then I ended up trading gold for about two or three years. And then 1990, when Iraq invaded Kuwait, I was standing in the gold pit watching the crude oil prices going all, literally all over the place. And um, so I convinced uh, you know my father to send me over to the crude pit and... Uh, you know, that was the end of my career on COMEX. So I spent uh, from 1990 to basically 07, 08, uh, traded crude oil for all those years. Uh, spent uh, time on literally every committee on the exchange, um, from facilities to corporate governance to electronic trading. I worked my way up to, uh, I had three terms on the board, uh, three consecutive three-year terms on the board, uh, as well as uh, I was on the executive committee and we built the, we, we built the exchange. I actually brought... Bain Capital in uh, early to value the exchange. They valued it at 800 million. And in 2006, uh, I was on the team and we took it public for $12.5 billion. So it's some very interesting years uh, there, uh, along with you know such things as the events of September 11th and you know getting the exchange back up and running, which we could talk about, as well as Katrina, the hurricanes, two Gulf Wars, and and quite, quite the, uh, quite the ride it was. That's all I can say. Yeah, definitely interesting background, David. So, so just for our listeners, can you just explain how it's different when you first started, when you were actually on the pit? So, you know, people have seen it in the movies, whereby they're throwing essentially pieces of paper into the pit. You know, how did that actually work back then, before it was all became electronic? Yeah, what most people don't realize is that in that mayhem. In that chaos, there was amazing order. And what I, the way that I described it once to a friend of mine from the New York Jets that came in and said, how do you understand when people are screaming and yelling, there's bodies flying all over the place? I said, well, when I go to a football game, I just see the quarterback step back, pass to the wide receiver, the wide receiver runs, gets tackled or scores. 
I don't see everything that's happening on the line to get that wide receiver open. And what happens is, is that when you get into the pit, especially in the beginning, everything's moving a little bit quickly. Um, it takes a little bit of while to get up to speed, but over time, everything ends up being almost in slow motion to you and you become very clear. Um, and that's why, you know, we were so good at panic you know, because basically we lived in a panic state. So, you know, you, you go in there and you, you'd find your spot, you know, and everybody had a different spot in the ring. Your spot was very important and you work your way up from the bottom of the ring up to the top. And I remember I was on the second step and a guy behind me got into a terrible car accident, shattered his ankle. I popped up to his step. I got so much crap about it. What are you doing here? That's, it's not your step. It's not your spot. And I said, listen, as soon as he comes back, I will step back down. Somebody's got to stand here. Well, it turns out he went on disability, never, never came back, and that, would be, that was my spot for, for years. And you go into the pit and you buy and sell and you do hand signals from across the ring. And, you know, we used to kid around. You buy things you don't want. You sell things you don't have. And at the end of the day, most of us just went home flat. But it was completely chaotic and completely in order all at the same time with a natural movement up and down in the pit. So then what ended up happening was, and, and the real key was for, for the oil exchange was on not September 11th, but around September 15th, that we had to get up. Uh, the building was in ground zero, and we weren't sure if we were going to open up, be able to open up the building on the next Monday. But we had option prices going off on you know that Friday. So we either had to figure out a way to work out the options without a settlement, which one of my ideas was, well, you can't do something that helps all the calls and you can't do something that helps all the puts, so you've got to figure out a way to screw both sides. Or we need to get up and running again. And the team did an amazing job. Vinny Viola was the head of it, who is actually the head of Virtue Trading now. And the team got an amazing job of putting a closed-end electronic system that we only used at night onto an open-end internet-based system in three days. And we opened up the market for two or three hours and where I thought it wasn't gonna work. Uh, and I thought there'd be a bid and offer a mile wide. We opened up, we did 70,000 contracts. We had a two cent wide market. I said, okay, the floor is over. I walked away and Vinny Viola looked at probably the same screen and said, I can make a billion dollars off of electronic trading, which he did. Um, so you know, slowly but surely, over the next um, five years, we, we went electronic, um, especially for the IPO. And, uh, you know, the floor went from a thriving place to now it's completely closed down. And just an entire exchange is electronic then? Yeah, I mean, you see some people, it's so funny, when you ever see CNBC and you see the desk in the middle on the stock market. The stock market and commodity market was two different things. Commodity market was a much more wild experience. But that desk is on post one, which is literally takes up most of the trading floor because there's no traders there. There's a few traders left in Chicago. Uh, but the New York Mercantile Exchange, where the world's gold and oil and natural gas and so many other products, uh, not only has been closed, but the business has been sold and they even took the nameplate off the building. So uh, it's over. Yeah, so, so that's super interesting to see the change from the uh traditional right the way through to electronic to the point that it's not actually anyone there anymore so it's um so how do you see the future of oil then right now david well it's well it's interesting though because there was a transition that was done in the beginning when when crude oil trading went electronic at first that you had these huge swings if you look back at the history and the charts in 07 08 09 um it had these massive swings because they just didn't have the same liquidity 
because what people don't realize about the trading floor, we actually added a tremendous amount of liquidity. And I used to kid around and say, well, if the market started coming off and it was like at 90, at 80, at 70, at 60, at a half, at 40, there's some dumb schmuck like me going, oh, this is too much. I'm going to go 35 bit paper broker and go sold. There's somebody else who go, oh, I'm 30 bit, it was sold. And another guy would come out 28 bit and it was sold. So you have these natural stops to slow the market up in or down or up in either direction. And what happened with electronic trading is, and that was simply because everybody has a difference of opinion, right? You know, their opinions on the desks upstairs around the world on the trading floor. But what ended up happening and the reason why you start seeing these massive swings for the first few years is that all the algos were, were basically done the same way. They pull out of a trade in literally a, a hundredth, two hundredth, three hundredth of a second. Um, and they just created these gaps and where people call them flash crashes. I just call them gaps because it is what it is. So that really changed the market for the first few years and volume was really struggling on the trading floor because traders just couldn't compete, not, I mean, in the upstairs market. And most of the guys, I would say 98% of the guys that were traders on the floor couldn't compete with computers, uh, stepped out of the business. The computers slowly added more and more liquidity in with many different types of traders, computerized algos coming in. And now you're back to an orderly market where you can literally get in at almost any tick that you want. And the key to any market, whether it be gold, whether it be crude oil, whether it be IBM or, or Facebook, is that you want to know that when you want to get out, that you can now just hit the button and, and then get out, right? So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, so it's changed tremendously. But listen, it's still an exciting market. I think the future of crude oil is going to be a lot of different, a lot of different things. You're going to have, I mean, before my time, I was also on the board that invented Clearport. That you have I don't know, probably close to, I think, over a thousand products on Clearport now which you can make up almost any product you want, clear it on the exchange, take it off your balance sheets. So that was a derivative that never happened. Um, you have all these exotics, but also I think, you know, like what we've been talking about, you're going to see a tokenization of crude oil. The tokenization of crude oil is going to allow almost the average person to get back into it like they used to be back in the old days. And I think that can be an exciting, you know, exciting process. Yeah, no, that, that, that sounds really interesting. So it's, um, so just talk a bit, a bit more about your time as a board member of NYMEX and what actually that involved. Well, the board member and I, was, we went through an amazing time during those years. We had the biggest growth in the, in, the, uh, in the exchange's history. We had, as I said, we had September 11th, which we, you know, I lost personally uh, 24 friends and colleagues that all cleared my clearinghouse. And, you know, Vinnie Viola was the chairman at the time and he got us up and running because he got a call from the White House you know, basically saying, listen, world oil prices and gold prices are going, you know, out of control and we need to see if we can get the exchange up and running. And it was a real feat on what he pulled off. I mean, everything from, we had full cooperation from Washington. We were having helicopters drop generators on top of the building, putting oil in them, line, you know, cell towers being put up because we were the only building that was secretly open for three months during, you know, that whole cleanup. Nobody else was open on the west side of uh, Ground Zero. The stock market, all they had to do was flip the switch and walk back in simply because the buildings fell towards us. They didn't fall, they didn't fall east, they fell west. You know, so that was one of the, you know, that was one of the bigger adjustments of being on the NYMEX board. But, you know, understanding that at a very early age, I mean, I was 40 and on the executive committee, um, we were making policy. You know, we were, 
we were controlling how crude oil was traded basically through the world because at that time the Brent market was not an, not a major market. It was ice was just being just being formed and and ice was our biggest competitor, but ended up being our biggest friend because when ice was first developed and Jeff Sprecher came in with Gary Cohn, who was actually on our executive committee and put a gun to the board's head that, listen, either you join us or we're going to take your market away. There was great fear in that and they were definitely ahead of the curve. But what happened over time between the war between NYMEX and ICE is that a WTIC rent trade started happening. And then when they listed a WTI cash market, it was WTI. And literally, it was just a ping pong ball bouncing back and forth, arming all day. And volumes on both exchanges exploded. So who knew? You know, the, the, Our biggest enemy ended up being our biggest help going into an IPO because our volume just skyrocketed. And then we had the situations, obviously, with Katrina and a lot of in in 05, um, which was a wild year. I think there were 22 named storms that year. It was one of the craziest years on the exchange I can remember. But again, you have to remember that even though there was money being made and there was oil being traded, it's also policy and world policy and 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 how how our process of doing things, you know, affected things. I mean, OPEC didn't like us simply because we were a bigger factor in, in the pricing of oil than they were. Um, and they were starting to fall apart and never really taken seriously. So a lot of crazy things. And, you know, NYMEX politics, we used to kid around, was a, was a contact sport, uh, like in many businesses. But it was, it was a great experience, a wild ride. And, you know, was, I, I miss it every day. Mm-hmm. So, so you spoke um, briefly about Brent crude. So can you explain the difference and why we've got different crude price over here compared to Brent? And, uh, you know, what the difference is and what the spread is between them and why does this happen? Sure. Well, you know, the interesting thing about Brent, Brent's a North Sea oil. Brent was actually used more than WTI. Um, WTI, even though it was the benchmark, it was a much smaller product. And we always knew that. And we just had a, we just great press. We just had great presence. And when I went up, when we were going to try to steal the Brent market back when we were competing with ICE, um, and we actually opened up in Dublin very briefly, I went, I went overseas to talk to the Brent traders, and it was a small little pit with about 15 guys, and it was, it was nothing. It was, it was totally irrelevant. And the Brent price um, really moved around a lot. I mean, there's an old story, I think it was with Hess, that they blew out the Brent spreads, you know, the front month spreads because they took all the tankers in the North Sea and basically sent them over towards China, which caused a, a shortage in the market. And then they got out of their spreads, they sold all their, their spreads, they got short, then they turned the tankers back, and then the price collapsed. Well, they got fined for it, but trust me when I tell you, they made a lot more money. So you have the Brent, you know, you have the Brent oil, you have the top UTI oil, which is more of a light, sweet crude, it's a cleaner crude. Brent's a, a thicker crude, it's less refined. Um, and then people don't have to realize there's all these different oils and derivatives and, and pricing is basically done that you can have when you do a Brent WTI spread. If you're along the WTI and short the Brent and WTI goes up and Brent stays, you make money. Or if the Brent goes down, you, you double make money or the spread, you know, inverts. And that was just a big trade that people did. Not necessarily for delivery all the time. People need to realize that for the amount of crude that's traded per day is far greater than the amount of crude that's used in the in the world per day. And the thing that I used to you know show people on just how much speculation there was in the front month markets 
is that if you really think about it, you'd hear an event happen and crude would either go up or drop $5 in a day or two. Well, that delivery was already you know, spoken for. World's oil consumption didn't change that much for a day or two. It's more, it's going to, you know, if an event happened and things tightened up, um, you know, it would take months for that to hit the market. But in both markets, in both Brent and with WTI, there was tremendous leeway in the front couple of months, two or three months. Um, there was tremendous speculation. And there are some games played as well within the industry. So thanks for listening so far to Boom It's on the Blockchain. This is the first part in a two-part podcast with David Greenberg. And next week we will be discussing OPEC and how they try to control the oil price, setting up the Dubai Mercantile Exchange, and looking at our own upcoming uh, Zion Energy tokenization platform, where we're looking to tokenize oil and energy on the blockchain. Thanks very much. Have a nice day. Thanks very much for listening to our podcast. And if you'd like to know more information or get our next podcast, then visit our website, www.zyn.com. Thanks very much. Have a nice day.